Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco. Hi, I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian W. Kamau Bell just moved to New York to do a new TV show called Totally Biased. But he's originally from Chicago, and he spent most of his comedy career in the Bay Area. There are really weird racial politics in San Francisco. Yes. I mean, the show was written, I feel like it it was written the way it was written because I was in San Francisco. Because I felt like, uh, coming from Chicago, Chicago is very segregated and very open about its segregation. There's kind of a sense in Chicago that you could walk into a place and they'd be like, oh, no, we don't let black people in here. And you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) And you would just walk out and be like, oh, I'm glad they told me. That would have been a horrible evening. (laughs) That would have been a really waste of all of our time. But, uh... But in the Bay Area, there's oftentimes you walk into a place and you feel like, huh, I kind of get the impression they would rather I wasn't here. You know, there's a weird sense of I'm six foot four and 250 pounds. And often in San Francisco, I would feel invisible in a weird way. It's bullseye. This week, W. Kamau Bell calculates the gentrification sweet spot. Everybody likes a frappuccino, but at some point you look up and you go, hey, but I also like to have an apartment. Singer-songwriter Eleni Mandel's life is changed by Tom Waits, Tom Traubert's blues specifically, even though it wasn't the song that she had meant to hear. And stand-up comedian Mike Birbiglia writes, directs, and stars in a movie. He says it's the hardest thing he's ever done, but he's bound to do it again. All this week on Bullseye, let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by one of our favorite culture critics to give us a guide to something that is worth our time. This week, we're joined by Jason Kotke from Kotke.org, the world's finest repository of hyperlinks. Uh, Jason, how are you doing, pal? I am great. How are you, Jesse? Oh, I'm great. I'm happy to have you back on the program. Um, Let's talk about these cool things that you've pointed us to. The first is this website uh, built by the Library of the University of California at San Diego called Dr. Seuss Adman Madman. Um, And this is just amazing. I mean, I I guess I didn't know about all of this stuff. Yeah, in the late late 20s and 30s, uh, Dr. Seuss was an illustrator for advertising. And uh, it basically supported his family through the Great Depression. And uh, after that, he became you know, the, uh, the beloved children's book writer and illustrator that we, that we all know and love. So do you have any favorites of these illustrations? The one that I posted on the site was, uh, I think it was for, it was for some vacuum tubes or some radio or something. And there were these little monsters that make all sorts of noise and they ruin the good music and stuff. Um, I don't know. They're, they're all so good. They're, you know, all the Seuss characters are, you know, there, it's just like these little crazy, you know, creatures and animals and, and things like that. These guys are like, they're literally beating on drums. They're like Dr. Seuss guys beating on drums inside of what looks like a radio or something driven by uh, vacuum tubes. And you forget that advertising used to be a lot more illustration driven. You know, now it's all photography and it's all, you know, computer generated graphics and things like that. But back then, you know, it was all hand drawn by illustrators and, you know, lots of characters like this. And actually Warhol, you started in advertising, too, and also editorial. But, you know, he drew, you know, obviously not not like Dr. Seuss, but more in a style of Warhol. But he drew advertisements like this as well. Let's talk about your other pick. Uh, This is an amazing short documentary that was made for, I'll say, a sports television network. Um, by the brilliant documentarian Errol Morris. It's called The Life and Death of Sports Fans. We had a Stiller fan whose spouse came to us, and she said, my husband is ill, and he doesn't want to have a traditional service. So when he passed away, we wanted to seem like he just fell asleep watching the game. The dimensions of a recliner chair are very similar to a casket, and we would have him laid in the recliner as though he fell asleep. 
He had a TV in front of him with the Steelers playing. We even had his favorite blanket on him. He didn't love him until he died. He loved the Steelers even in his death. Did you make the family happy? Yes, I did make the family happy. This thing is, it's sort of a classic Errol Morris documentary. Yeah, I mean, he's hes interviewing people who are, you know, sitting right in front of the camera. He's probably using the Enterotron, which is the, the thing that he invented where he can, he and the subject can look in each other's eyes instead of the subject looking into the camera and looking off camera to the interviewer. It's really an amazing thing. I presume, uh, Jason, that you're going to have a sports-themed funeral? <laughs> I might have an Errol Morris-themed funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Kotke recommends Errol Morris's short documentary, The Life and Death of Sports Fans, and Dr. Seuss, Adman, Madman, on the website of the library of UCSD. You can find links to both on our website and at Jason's website, kotke.org. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Would you go to a comedy show that promised, and this is a quote straight from the flyer, to end racism in about an hour? What if you got half-price tickets for showing up with someone of another race? For years, my guest W. Kamau Bell has been alternating old-fashioned stand-up road gigs with a live show in San Francisco and Oakland called the W. Kamau Bell Curve. Bell takes on not just old-fashioned overt racism, but also the kind that crops up even in the liberal Bay Area, what the comedian Patrice O'Neill once called the shit I can't prove. His famous fans include Dave Chappelle, with whom he's traveled both before and after the dissolution of Chappelle's show, and Chris Rock, who's the producer of Bell's new FX late-night talk show, Totally Biased. Here's Bell on his old stage show, talking about his interracial marriage. I think about racism all the time, uh, you know, especially as I get older and things start to change. And I'm going through some changes right now. I got married three months ago. Uh, to a white woman. <laughs> uh, so complicated, my feelings. Yes. You know, we had an interracial relationship, and it's weird how you find out how people, kind of like gay relationships have weird hits on interracial relationships that you wouldn't expect. Out of nowhere, people talk <laughs> Me and Melissa, we, it was our first date. We were at a taqueria, sharing a burrito, just hanging out. Out of nowhere, we weren't even dating yet. This black woman walks in, walks right up to me and goes, mm. <laughs> You dating a white girl. Because you can't handle a black woman. Yeah, no <laughs> I can't handle any of that, actually. Thank God for white women to take my trifling ass off your hands. <laughs> Kamau, welcome back to the show. Man, I want to put a negative YouTube comment on that guy's page. <laughs> that is un- inappropriate. <laughs> Kamau, I w- I, here's the most important first question is, um, you were kind enough to drive to Santa Cruz when I was, I guess, just out of college and co-host this show with me um, about eight years ago now. What proportion of your success uh, in your new television program would you consider is directly due to that? The choices are 75 or 90%. So I can't say 91% is what you're telling me. <laughs> I guess I got to go with 90%. Uh, you know, I clearly, it was, it was a, that was my, that was actually my foothold into the alternative comedy universe. And I've never, and I've kept my foot in there ever since then. So here's a, here's a real question. You have been in the, San, you're originally from uh, the Chicago area, but you've been in San Francisco for, more than 15 years now. You actually recently moved to New York to make the show, but you spent a long, long time in San Francisco. And as folks that I knew from the comedy scene that you came up with moved sort of one at a time to either New York or Los Angeles, I always admired and also questioned 
your <laughs> your commitment to staying in the Bay Area. So why did you forego the you know the brass ring and stick it out in uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area? Uh, I think equal parts fear and insecurity. I guess I would say. <laughs> Uh, then that's, I'm not entirely joking. I mean, there was a part of me that felt like uh, there was a point at which I would be like, well, I need to go. This is the point I need to go. And I went to Montreal, the Montreal Comedy Festival in 2005, I guess it was, that the New Faces show. And I sort of thought I would come out of that and be like, well, now it's time to go. But Montreal wasn't all I thought it was going to be. So I came back and really sort of was like, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time questioning like if I was cut out for stand-up comedy, quite honestly, and so I really was like, well, if I go to New York or LA, I have to know that I'm that I have to I have to go to sell myself. I can't be going there with all this uh, internal angst. I'm surprised to hear you say that you were concerned uh, just about the prospect of actually being a stand-up comedian. I mean, the people who know me, my really close friends, I, you know, I, I I would regularly go through sort of like this thing about like maybe I just need to quit. Maybe it's just not my thing. Like, you know, I would, and really not, and really questioning, like, maybe it's just not for me. And I think that the the fact is, the fact, if I have, if I, there's times if I could have thought of something else that was going to make me some percentage of happy, I would have quit. But I never, I, you know, I even, I did that thing where you call the cooking school that you see the commercials for, <laughs> where you're like, huh, the Culinary Institute. I like food. Uh, so, I mean, I've, and you know, I've done, I've had various weird jobs, you know, uh, you know, where I just was like trying to see maybe there's something else out there for me. So yeah, I think I'm, I, I've always sort of felt like a round peg in a square hole of stand-up comedy. So what was it that was shaking you to the point where you thought I should just try and find something else that I'm happy doing? I, basically it's the, it's the thing that pushed me into the solo show, the W. Kamau Bell Curve in the first place is that I felt like I really had very specific things I wanted to talk about on stage and you know, a comedy club is not really a place for thematic art necessarily. <laughs> Just like you know, there's a you know second show on a Friday night. People go, yeah, yeah, your jokes about race, but I kind of need you to talk about your nether region. <laughs> And I don't have problems with jokes about nether regions. I just felt like I would only want to talk about that if it, as it related to race, you know. And so I, I sort of often found myself in a position where I would do jokes that would jokes that I wrote that I liked on some level to get through shows because people just didn't want to hear a thirty minute, a thirty minutes or an hour about race, and or the way I was doing it. Maybe from other comedian, it'd be fine. But so I felt like I really needed to go someplace where I felt like I could just explore that muse. And to the to my heart's content, and I knew well if I rent a theater and make flyers and call the show the W. Kamau Bell Curve, ending racism about an hour. Even if I only get one person in the room, that one person is going to sit and go, "Well, what do you got?" And so that's the thing that sort of like basically I, as soon as 2007, I started doing the solo show in San Francisco. I did it once a month for four months. Every show sold out. I mean, it was a small black box theater, but still, I'd never sold. I didn't know anybody cared about me at that point in comedy. Uh, the shows sold out. Uh, they were starting to get some press, and that's the thing that sort of anchored me into comedy at that point. When you moved to San Francisco, did you first of all did you were you in this were in San Francisco or the East Bay when you first moved to the Bay? I, I moved to Oakland uh, when I first moved to the Bay, uh, just because I was told that's how you're supposed to do it as a black person moving to the Bay Area. You got <laughs> you got to start in Oakland, and then if you pass a series of auditions, you can get to San Francisco. So yeah, I lived in Oakland for like I think the first two years, and I've always spent a lot of time in Oakland, maybe because I started living there. It's funny because in the time that you've lived in the Bay Area, um, San Francisco has changed really dramatically. And I, I think that people might imagine um, a quote-unquote political comedian, especially someone doing material about race and class and stuff, um, sort of standing up in San Francisco and and just saying, you know, these Republicans, this and that. Um, but it seems like you've always made a point of going a little, going past that sort of that sort of first first pass easy progressive. Here's a joke that I know you're gonna like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I I do feel like I think because I didn't come to political comedy as as somebody who was like. I'm political. I will do comedy about politics. I came to political. I came to this thing that people have described as a political comic as here's a few things I care about, 
and I want and since I'm a comic, I want to talk about the things I care about. Here I go. I'm about to sound pretentious, Jesse. My stake is in justice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you're really, saying like, you're like a Martin Luther King of comedy, is that correct? You know, if he had really taken his message further and been more committed to it, <laughs> right. he would have been W. Kamau Bell. That's exactly what I'm saying, and I know no one's going to take that the wrong way. I'm sure of that. <laughs> there are really weird racial politics in San Francisco. Yes. I mean, the show was written, I feel like it it was written the way it was written because I was in San Francisco, because I felt like uh, coming from Chicago, Chicago is very segregated and very open about its segregation. There's kind of a sense in Chicago that you could walk into a place and they'd be like, oh, no, we don't let black people in here. And you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) And you would just walk out and be like, oh, I'm glad they told me. That would have been a horrible evening. (laughs) That would have been a really waste of all of our time. But uh, but in the Bay Area, there's oftentimes you walk into a place and you feel like, huh, I kind of get the impression they would rather I wasn't here. You know, there's a weird sense of I'm six foot four and 250 pounds. And often in San Francisco, I would feel invisible in a weird way. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian W. Kamau Bell. He's got a new TV talk show on FX produced by Chris Rock called Totally Biased. Here's Kamau on the streets of Harlem asking Harlem residents how they feel about New York City's stop-and-frisk policy. You were stopping first last yes, year? Yes, I was. I had some basketball shorts on and three... First mistake. Yes, first mistake, seriously. Negro in basketball shorts. Do you dress like this for your job or so you don't get stopped and frisked? <laughs> I'm a target of being uh, frisked all the time, so uh, that's why I'm talking to this mic right now. Okay, all right. Three unmarked cops, big white guys, ran up on me and started patting me down. Like, ran up Unmarked? On me. Like, like not, not in like not regular uniforms. clothes, yeah. Are we sure there was cops? I hope so. Oh, yeah, we should. Uh, you... Otherwise, I got molested. When I finally met someone outside of my neighborhood, white, that didn't have it happen. <laughs> like you said, white. You know, like, I mean, I don't want to say it like that, but when I spoke to them, and they're like, what do you mean get stopped by cops? I don't get stopped by cops. At the New York Civil Liberties Union, how many white people do you have coming to complain about stop and frisk? I don't, I can't say that I've gotten a complaint <laughs> from a white person. Tell me about the circumstances of how you found yourself returning again and again to race in your comedy. I mean, when I started doing comedy, I, this is the thing. I think sometimes people, uh, when they talk to me, they, I think they get the impression I probably came out of the comedy gate as like, white people, you need to learn. <laughs> and it was not really – it was not that at all. It was really – I just wanted to be funny. I wanted to be a comedian ever since I found out superhero wasn't a legitimate job option. <laughs> And, you know, so I always wanted to be a stand-up comic. I was, uh, you know, I was Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor. I mean, Eddie Murphy and uh, Bill Cosby were equally funny to me. I thought that both of those guys are doing – I love both of them the same. And so I sort of felt like I'm somewhere in between. I don't know. But I, I always wanted to be a comedian. So when I started to do comedy, I was just trying to be funny, like whatever it is. And, you know, some comics come out of the gate fast and some comics come out of the gate like me where you're just like it's just a, it's just a mess. And it, I, I was really a mess for a long time, and I just sort of was sorting through whatever, like begging for laughs, like panning for laughs. Is this funny? And I would sort of let the crowd tell me where to go. And so I would do jokes about race because I was like, well, that's the thing I do. My mom, I, my mom is a big race person, and so I certainly had thoughts about it. And whenever I did jokes about race, and this was in Chicago, I felt like the crowd would pull back or they would only want a little bit of it. And so I think I spent the first section of my career – sort of going, I'm not going to talk about race because nobody wants to hear it, to then feeling compelled to talk about race and then doing that for a while. But then I felt like I would go up on stage with a chip on my shoulder, which wasn't fun. So I would go back and forth between these poles of like not talking about it and then talking about it, but being really defensive about it probably. And that's sort of the, that was the beginning of my career and really sort of not knowing where to go to the point that when I, like I said, in 2007, I was like, well, I'm going to commit to race, but I'm just going to do it in a different way that I don't feel that I can do it in front of an audience who, who maybe cares. Tell me about living in San Francisco as a huge black guy. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, uh, by the time I left San Francisco a few months ago to come out here, there was two different types of people who would come up to me in the street. There was people who would come up to me and go, hey, are you that comedian uh, J. Jamal Brown? And I'd be like, yes, I am. And then the other kind of people are, hey, are you that guy who lives in the inner sunset? 
so I kind of had two different levels of fame. I had fame for being the com- the comedian who'd been on a lot of stuff, and I had fame for being the inner sunset black guy. <laughs> but they like one guy. I this is this is true. I left town for two weeks. I came to New York for two weeks. I went back to San Francisco. I ran into this black guy, homeless black guy in the neighborhood, and you know just walked past him, and I would say hello, you know, because that's the kind of guy I am. And he was like, "Where have, where have you been?" And I was like, "I was out of town." He's like, "Man, I missed you." <laughs> And I was like, that is a sad state of affairs of the blackness of San Francisco that I could leave town for two weeks and be missed by a dude whose name I don't even know. I think it's really significant, though, to live in a place where you have to be aware of where circumstances make it so that you're aware of your race. It's an experience that most white people in America don't really have unless they happen to, you know, Go to Richmond or, um, you know, a foreign country, maybe. Well, I think that's the thing. And I think white people sometimes get that confused with actually being an other. Because sometimes I hear, I'll hear a white person say, well, I was in Japan for three weeks and I know exactly what you're going through now. And it was like, no, you kind of went to race vacation. <laughs> like, that's not the same as living with it every day of your life. I mean, and right now I'm in New York and I live in Brooklyn and I really do feel a different sense about myself, about the fact that I'm around a lot more black people and it just feels better in a weird way. And I love San Francisco and I miss it right now, but it feels weirdly like, like there's less weight on my shoulders being black in Brooklyn than being black in San Francisco. But on the other hand, my white wife is like, yeah, it's not the same for me here. <laughs> I, I, I feel white in a whole new way that we, now that we live in Brooklyn. So, but again, it's like, it's, it's she, that's in Brooklyn where we're living now. But the moment you go to Manhattan, that changes, you know? Or the moment you go to different parts of Brooklyn, that changes. Do you have this weird experience living in Brooklyn, a place that you have, that you are, that you have moved to as, you know, at least temporarily and hopefully longer for your sake, an upper middle class person? Seven to ten seasons, hopefully. Um, do you have this weird experience of feeling a, a type of simpatico, in this case, presumably, I would presume a sort of racial simpatico, but also to some extent a class simpatico, and then realizing that you are the gentrifier? Actually, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I feel it the other way. I am aware that I'm the gentrifier, even in Brooklyn. Like, like me moving into that neighborhood as a black person with his white wife and mixed-race baby, I'm aware that to many Brooklynites, they look at me as a gentrifier. And so I'm aware of not even in Brooklyn, whereas I feel, I feel glad to be around so many black people, but not to take up too much space from the people who are like, no, I've lived here forever. That's that. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I think sometimes about I, I, I my half of my family sort of got pushed out of where um, I grew up in the mission in San Francisco. And it when I was a teenager, it was like a central class anger of my life. And now I think that if I ever moved back there, um, you know, I'm a I'm an upper middle class I'm a yuppie, basically. Yes, yeah. And I would be the I would be the thing that I hated as a teenager, and it sort of it tears me up a little bit. Well, no, and I think that I, but I, and I think the way around that a little bit is that you know you can move wherever you want to move, but have respect for the place you're moving into. And I'm saying that to myself too. And that's how I feel about Brooklyn. Like, there's pe- there's black people in Brooklyn who are like, I'm not black. I'm from Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like that's a, that in some sense Brooklyn outweighs black for some people, and so. I would say that for me, it's like I feel very aware of not doing the thing that I see the gentrifiers do, of coming in and taking up, just taking up too much space. You know, I come into your neighborhood, I want to learn about your neighborhood and what goes on here and not try to impose myself on this neighborhood. And I think I feel that way because as a black person, I'm used to the other side of it. There is this quality of, I know what this place needs that often comes with that wave of gentrification. Well, it's funny. Uh, uh, Nato Green, who's a comedian friend of mine who also writes on Totally Biased, says that, you know, he sort of says, everybody likes a little bit of gentrification. It's just hard to know where the line is. <laughs> you know, every, every urban neighborhood would appreciate a huge chain grocery store coming in, you know. 
Everybody, everybody likes a frappuccino. <laughs> you know, like it's just, it's just there's certain things we all we all kind of enjoy. But at some point, you look up and you go, "Hey, but I also like to have an apartment." <laughs> how, when, how can we slow down the How can we slow down the uh, line of gentrification so I get a uh, grocery store with fresh produce, frappuccino, and an apartment? And that's the problem: is that you can't you can't just turn that line off. You can't turn the gentrification movement off. After a break, more with W. Kamau Bell. Plus, musician Eleni Mandel explains how making out can really improve your record listening experience. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Max FunCon East is coming up in a couple of months. It's a jam-packed weekend full of comedy and creativity in the Poconos. We're happy to announce two scholarships to Max FunCon East this year. Applications will be accepted from those who would otherwise be unable to attend for financial reasons. The scholarships are intended for people with creative aspirations who hope to use the Max FunCon experience to learn new skills, find collaborators, and further their projects. Applications are due soon. Go to maxfuncon.com for details. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is W. Kamau Bell, the host of Totally Biased on FX and Fox. Here he is on the show. And of course, Mitt Romney is pretending to be outraged. Mr. President, take your campaign of division and anger and hate back to Chicago. Take it back to Chicago? (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) Come on, Mitt, you didn't mean Chicago, Illinois. You meant Chicago, Africa. You want Barack to go back to Chicago. <laughs> Which is just a short drive from Mozambique. <laughs> I want to talk to you for a second about your folks because um, your, your parents are, are not together. And so you grew up in these two orbits. And, and as I remember in, in your old act, I don't know if you've done this joke any time in the last 10 years, but... You did a little biographical background that started with my dad is black and my mom is black. <laughs> um, Sorry to laugh at my old joke. <laughs> that, that's that. That was a joke that I wrote that really felt like was the was I was starting to head the right direction. I felt there's a section of my act back in the day that I really respect because I felt like I was headed the right direction, and that uh, that's an example. Of that. You know, y- your parents were. Uh, separated and both black, but with sort of different versions of black identity coming out of the civil rights movement. Um, Can you tell me what those were roughly? I mean, I think to uh, my mom was the sort of the outside agitator. So my mom basically out of the civil rights movement was like, you know what, I'm not going to fight my way into the white world. I mean, this is probably by the 80s. She decided I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to start. I'm going to publish my own books. I'm going to, she published books of famous black quotations that she self-published herself and fed us and made a home for us off of self-publishing her own books. Uh, she just sort of got off, not off the grid, but she got out of the hustle to try to sort of get into the to the to the the white man's world, shall we say, and make it there. And she had been. A I was just editor. I was just looking at her website and saw that 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 the, her first self published book sold fifty thousand copies, which is no joke. Yeah, and this was before. This is the eighties. So there's no internet. There's no you know that's word of mouth, and that's her. That's my mom loading up books in a car and going to book fairs. You know, and driving hundreds of miles to book fairs just to sell this book that she made herself. I mean, it's quite an incredible thing, and it only gets more incredible in hindsight because this was this was not this was literally. There used to be a person I used to go with my mom. We'd have to drive out to the suburbs to to meet the typesetter. You know, the person whose job it was to set type for the book. That's called Microsoft Word now. I'm sorry that woman doesn't have a job. She was very nice. But, I mean, that to put together your own book back then, that's like eight different people, have to, eight different processes have to come together for you to put together one book that now happens on your computer. I think my dad I look at as like sort of the Tiger Woods approach. Uh, well, when I say that, let's, I'm saying early Tiger Woods, not the new, <laughs> not the Tiger Woods we're dealing with now. It's such a complicated analogy. God, Tiger, thanks for messing that up. But the analogy of the way of like, I'm just going to be better than you. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to operate in your world, but I'm going to get I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to work harder. Let's call that the Will Smith analogy. I'm just going to be better than you. 
And so that's my dad. So he's been, you know, he, he works right now. He's, a, he's semi-retired but works for a Fortune 500 company and lives part-time in New York and also is on the monetary board of the island of Bermuda. <laughs> I don't even know what that does or what it means, but that's my dad. He travels all over the world. And, you know, he's got a college degree that he got in his 40s from a small college in Mobile, Alabama. So he's not, he doesn't have any of the things that you're supposed to have to have all that stuff. He just works harder. And so uh, in between those two, and my parents were never together in my lifetime that I remember. So between those two, I sort of come out here. And I think that sort of creates the thing in me that's always like I'm always sort of questioning and, and trying to figure things out because I have these two different voices in my head. You've been a working comedian for a, a number of years now. Um, and a full-time one for at least a few. Um, but you had sort of gotten to the point in your life where you were a grown-up, you were married and having a baby, um, and you were still living in San Francisco where show business doesn't exist. <laughs> and had you decided that your life was going to be the life of a successful local show business person, you know, somebody like, you know, there's a San Francisco comedian, Will Durst, who's made a great Mm -hmm. career of living in San Francisco. He works across the country, but, you know, he's famous in San Francisco and not really famous in other places. And I'm sure he makes a good living doing his thing. Had you decided that was going to be your career? I mean, I think I always looked at it as a, and I know Will, he's a great guy. I looked at it more in the music analogy. Like, I, like I, was, I always told myself, I was like, I want to be the Ani DeFranco of stand-up comedy. Like, I want to go to the 10 or 15 places in the, in the country. I want to build up that audience in the 10 or 15 places in the country where people love what I do, and I will then sustain a living by going to those places. So in that sense, it is, the Will, it is like Will Durst is doing. And, you know, I sort of always had the idea, at some point, I'll get that uh, weird local radio talk show that people get. And if possible, like Ani DeFranco, uh, you'll somehow leverage it into being friends with Prince. That's exactly the point. Like, you want to, like my thing was to, like, I want to be the person that the cool people are like, you don't know who he is. That that's on you, <laughs> like you know what I mean. It was like it was like that point where uh, where the Roots would be like, you haven't heard of Coldplay, and everybody's like, what? If the Roots like Coldplay, I better go find out about Coldplay. You worked for um, many years frequently with Dave Chappelle, um, almost always in the Bay Area and and often elsewhere as well. Um, and he was, you know, about as brilliant a stand up comedian as could be, who leveraged his stand-up comedy success into uh you know distinctive and innovative innovative television program that ended up being something that he didn't like so much that he quit for a completely different lifestyle um i wonder what it was like to see that especially with somebody who's as you know brilliant as dave Chappelle is to see the pain that could come from having something re- that theoretically should be really good happen. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, Dave Chappelle is one example of that. And I don't, and the thing I always say about Dave is that I feel, I certainly feel friendly with Dave and I know Dave, but I, I was never a part of his inner circle to know exactly how that went down. So I really saw it at like the, the most close seat on the sidelines. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I really did never really – like I don't have an answer for how he went down or what that happened. But I have – I mean I've noticed in my life, in my life of stand-up comedy, that there's something about being America's funniest black guy that is a very hot seat that seems to, that seems to be a seat that a lot of times burns people. And I mean whether it's uh, – you know, Cat Williams, where, where is he now? You know, he, you know, there's, a, you know there's Martin Lawrence – you know, it's uh, it's Tracy Morgan. You know, there's just that seems to be something about sitting in that seat. The only person who seems to be able to sustain it is Chris Rock, which I'm glad because he's, I have him on my side now as an executive producer of Totally Biased, um, because he's the only one who seems to be able to handle that in a way that do, that it doesn't burn him. But it seems like I feel like there's a PhD thesis in that story of like what is it about being the funniest black guy in America that eventually becomes a burden that you that that you can't either you can't handle or you don't want to handle. So you just started doing this TV show. You're in front of a national audience for the first time in your career. That's got to be scary. I mean, it's, 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 you know what, scary, certainly there's, you know, I've, 
I, I think I always take uh, like butterflies with me on stage, no matter what the situation are. So to me, it's like this certainly feels like a different level of butterflies. But for me, there's an aspect of it that it feels almost crazy because <laughs> I was so far off the path at that, that by the point that Chris Rock found me that I wasn't aiming towards a TV show. And so for me, the fact is, is like this is really a testament to the 21st century and new media, because I just don't believe this could have happened in the 20th century with the way things were that the Internet. Chris Rock saw my clips on the Internet. You know, he came to a show at the UCB theater, which those things didn't really exist in the 90s. You know what I mean? Before in the 20th century, like a little a comedy, a dedicated comedy theater. You know, he went to FX, which is this which is a it's not an upstart network, but a network that's, that wants to take chances. You know, in the days of three channels in UHF, there weren't a lot there weren't a lot of slots. But now there's a lot more slots for things to happen. And FX has decided that they want to be very brave. They want to be brave and really take chances with comedy. And I'm grateful to them that they feel like I'm a chance worth taking because no one's more aware than than me of the fact that I'm not famous. So it used to be that it was a very fame driven thing. By the time Jerry Seinfeld got the sign got the show Seinfeld, he was the biggest comic in the country. You know. And so for me, it feels a little bit crazy. But that craziness is kind of the thing about like that makes you feel like, yeah, I guess this is how it's supposed to happen because. My career never has gone the direction I thought it was going to go, and I've never been able to predict the, t- the, the twists and turns. I just sort of follow my nose and try to pursue something that makes me f- like get better and feel better about myself. It strikes me that it might be a great benefit to you that you've had the chance that a, a lot of people, when they get their big break, haven't yet had to figure out what your deal is. Well, I, you know, and I, but the thing about that, that even that's true, I feel like I have figured out what my deal is, but I haven't figured out what my deal is on TV. That's like a, <laughs> a, a new thing. And so I sort of have to constantly remind myself, it's the same deal. You have more resources and I, and I have writers and people around me who are helping me do it, but I can't get, I can't forget that uh, it's basically st- still do it the way you want to do it. Just do it in the format of TV. Cause sometimes I think there can be a little pressure like, well, maybe the way I did it doesn't work anymore. And I'm reminded by Chris and FX and Chuck Sklarlot that no, it's it's still you. Do your thing. So if you don't like this, you don't have to explain it to us. Just do your just just explain how you want us to do it. Well, come out. Congratulations on your new show, and thanks for coming back on our show. You know, I'll do it anytime. And thanks for letting me come up to Max FunCon. That was a, a that was also a life changing experience. Uh, that was, I really appreciate it. You've created a beautiful thing here, Jesse. That was about equivalent to meeting uh, and making friends with Chris Rock, right? Like Absolutely. That's what got you to 91% of my career responsibility. <laughs> Up until that point, you were at 90%, but after Max FunCon, you were at 91%. But again, since I can't pick 91%, I'll just say 90%. You can catch W. Kamau Bell on his new show, Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, on FX after Louie. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You might remember something like this happening, you know, before the internet. You hear a great song you've never heard before on the radio or the TV. You know who's performing it, but you don't necessarily know what it's called or what album it's on. You drive to the record store, you pick up an album, you take it home, you press play, and then your heart drops because it sounds nothing like what you were hoping for. That all happened to Eleni Mandel, but... It ended up changing her life. Eleni is a singer-songwriter who grew up in Los Angeles, loving both punk bands like Axe and folk rockers like Bob Dylan. Her own sound has been at times folky, other times a little bit 60s pop and even a little bit country sometimes. She's always used her lyrics to craft strong narratives. Here's a bit of Crooked Man from her latest album, I Can See the Future. Crooked hands with crooked fingers Crooked nerves and crooked smiles Bent on being bent, crooked heart and crooked mind. Crooked how he tried to kiss me while he. Laney's life was changed by Tom Waits. 
a song called Tom Trobert's Blues, specifically, even though it wasn't the song she meant to hear. There were two shows on MTV when MTV cared about music. One was called 120 Minutes, and one was called IRS is the Cutting Edge. And I'm not sure which of those two shows I saw Tom Waits on, but it was one of those two. And I'd never heard anything like it in my life, his voice. It was around the time, I think it was about 1984 or 85, when Rain Dogs came out. And I thought, God, this guy sounds like a car. It's the coolest thing I've ever heard. So my dad agreed to take me to the record store, and he said he'd buy me a Tom Waits record, but there were so many of them, I didn't know which one to pick, and I didn't know the name of the record I'd seen mentioned on the show. So my dad said, well, let's get this one because it's on Elektra Records and that's a good label. Well, that record was one called Small Change. So I put it on and the first song on the record is Tom Traubert's Blues. I remember hearing these strings come on and it did not sound cool to me at all. (laughs) I just thought I got the wrong record. (laughs) Wasted Ain't what the moon did God would have paid for no It's intense, isn't it? See you tomorrow If Frank can borrow And who's Frank? <laughs> Just sounds so down and out But also cinematic to me Like a black and white movie Walting Matilda and little by little, I started listening to it more and more. I was really determined to like this because I liked him on the show so much. And I'm tired of all these soldiers here. It's kind of giving me the chills hearing it right now. It had such an impact on me to hear such an incredibly strange voice. A big part of learning to like it was playing it while my boyfriend and I made out. And I think I had to have the bedroom door open, making out, listening to this record. Suddenly, I was really listening to it and really paying attention to the words and really trying to figure out what it was about. He talks about his stacies are, are soaking wet and I had no idea what stacies are. And then I found out they're shoes. It's a brand of shoe, the wingtips. And I just thought, that is so cool. And I think it really influenced my writing and trying to be specific about things. And he talks about Bushmills. What's Bushmills? I was a teenager. I had never heard of Bushmills. It's a whiskey. I started wondering who Matilda was, not knowing at all that waltzing Matilda is a phrase or a saying or something about traveling. But that's part of what I started to really love about it, sort of trying to figure out what everything meant. They were like a treasure map. And then I was just hooked. It just all seems so dramatic and interesting to me. Hanging out in bars, drinking whiskey. I just wanted to do all of that. Because it sort of took me down this path into this this weird life filled with characters. This song was like a gateway drug or something that led me into this other world. And here I am. Fugitives say that the streets aren't for dreaming now. Eleni Mandel recently released her ninth album, I Can See the Future. She's headed out on tour this month with Nick Lowe. You can see those dates at elenimandel.com. After a break, 
Mike Birbiglia talks about making a movie. He says it's the hardest thing he's ever done, but he's already ready to do it again. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and BRI, Public Radio International. Hey, Bullseye listeners, since you're into smart talk from smart people about all things pop culture, we hope you'll check out Film Spotting, in-depth film talk with me, Adam Kempinar. And me, Josh Larson. Like the great Jesse Thorne, Film Spotting has been producing shows since podcasting's Bronze Age with archives that date back to 2005. Every week on the show, you'll get in-depth film reviews, the weekly top five, and something called Massacre Theater. We reenact a famous movie scene, someone wins a t-shirt, plus interviews with filmmakers and regular film spotting marathons, mini film festivals exploring genres and directors. It's Film Spotting, a new episode every Friday or your money back. Subscribe for free in iTunes or find us at filmspotting.net. If you've got burning opinions about Bullseye, come discuss them with other fans on our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In a lot of ways, Mike Birbiglia's story is typical for a stand-up comic and also just for a guy. He came out of college knowing that he wanted to do comedy but struggled to find his voice. He loved his girlfriend, but he wasn't ready to get married. She was. Finding himself and getting comfortable with adult love are not unusual things for a man to go through in his mid-20s. What was unusual was that while this was going on, Mike was suffering from an undiagnosed condition called REM sleep disorder. In his dreams, his anxieties transformed into missile attacks and giant killer bugs. And at the same time, in real life, he was climbing up furniture in his bedroom, screaming and He eventually ran himself through the window of his room at a La Quinta Inn. It was not a ground floor room. Mike told his story on stage, on radio, and in a book called Sleepwalk With Me. He's now transformed it into a feature film, which he co-wrote and directed. He also stars in it. It's the story of coming to terms with his anxieties, finding who he was on stage and in life, and the aforementioned La Quinta Inn incident. In this clip from the film, we hear a little of Mike's conversation with his fiancée, played by Lauren Ambrose. The scene then transitions to contemporary Mike driving and talking retrospectively directly to the camera. Are we okay? Something wrong? I'm not saying I need to get married right now or anything. Just the idea that I spend all of my time with a person who can't even imagine that as a possibility is just weird. I, I know what you mean. What can I say? She was right. But at this point in my life, I mean, I was, I was figuring out some really basic stuff. Like, what am I going to do with my life? And where do you buy cereal? You know, I, I mean, I, I never thought of marriage as a goal. Like, I never looked at my parents' marriage or, or really anyone who'd been married more than 30 years and thought, I got to get me some of that. Mike Berbiglia, welcome to Bullseye. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you for pantomiming that entire scene for my benefit. As you were playing it, I was uh, I was lip syncing it. One of the things about making a movie is that I think that when you see a movie, there is so much more that you can't understand that's going on as a as a viewer than there is in, in a lot of other forms. True. You know, if I if I see a stand up comic. I may not be as funny as that person or have the skill to know that I need a punchline every so often. I need a certain kind of rhythm. But I know that that's a guy talking or a lady talking, and every so often she says something funny, and that's the central That's a very palatable concept, yeah. Right. The only thing people misunderstand about stand-up comedy is either they think that the person is improvising when they're performing written material that they've workshopped for years. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's really the only misunderstanding of stand-up comedy. Yeah. Mostly it's just, yeah, you're right. I mean, you, there's you a, get it. When you watch it, you go, yeah, I get how they did this. A stand-up is creating an illusion of ease that for something that is not necessarily easy, but you get what it is. Exactly. The, the person who, by the way, is the best at that magic trick of stand-up comedy is Norm MacDonald. <laughs> yes. You cannot see Norm MacDonald and not think that he's improvising <laughs> and that he's just coming up with whatever he's saying. But you see him a second time and you're like, no way. <laughs> that was all written. Even the pauses and the mo- just the moments in between are written. But the other thing about making a movie is everyone else has to be super good at their part of it. That's right. And that's crazy to me. That's the thing that blew my mind. When you see a movie... I can say empirically, when you see a movie, 
um, that you like and it's good and you are feeling something from it, it is a miracle because the amount of people who had to work at the top of their game with all of their heart and all of their soul and disregard their families <laughs> and be away for months and months and and, uh, and 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 put everything into it is it's so many people at at the simultaneous exact time and it's a it's a moment in time that usually doesn't happen that's why movies aren't good that's why typically you go oh movies <laughs> like what what's next for you know what the studio puts out cuz they're usually bad there's too many chefs not everybody's at the top of their game i get the impression though that you and your brother um who you write Joe a lot Rubiglia. of material yep. with and Ira Glass, who produced the film, yeah, Seth Barish, who co-wrote the and co-directed, yeah. I I get the feeling that I don't I don't know what Seth Barish's role in this, but I get the feeling is that the that you guys had were learning what it is to make a feature film, yeah. As you were making, that's it. that's exactly what it is. That's it, terrifying to it's me. Terrifying, and it's it's funny because it's like the big question everybody's asking me now is is um, well, are you going to make another film? And I'm like. Yeah, you don't go to medical school and then be like, well, I think I'm going to be a dog catcher. Like once you go and when you basically you're nearly dead making this thing that is the hardest thing you've ever done, you can't do anything else because it's so taxing. But it is terrifying. I mean, the best analogy I've come up with is directing your first feature is like showing up to middle school in seventh grade. Everybody's getting on the bus, and you're getting on the bus, and the only difference is you uh, stand up and you go, okay, everybody, I'm going to drive the bus. And everyone is like, what? You don't know how to drive the bus. The bus driver's going to drive the bus. And you're like, I know, but I've been watching the bus driver. I feel like I have the hang of it. I feel like I've watched other bus rides. I know what my favorite ones are. I know what my least favorite ones are. I feel like I have a bus driving aesthetic that's going to carry us through. And some people, and this happens, I think, on every movie, some people are like, I'm getting off the bus. This bus is going to fly off a cliff. We've seen that happen before. And then some people stay. And then, you know, in this case, we arrived at, at the field trip. We arrived at the Smithsonian. What was something that you weren't prepared for in the process of making the film? So many things. I think that the, the, the truly the most difficult uh, realization that was uh, the first happened the first week was I realized that you can't say the phrase as a, as a director on set. You can't say the phrase "I don't know." And in my and in my career, my, I feel I feel like in theater certainly, and in my own career as a stand up. My ambivalence is actually what is interesting about what I'm doing. It's that I'm finding it as I go. Like on stage, I'm kind of going, huh, that got a laugh. Let, let's go in that direction more. Or, or you know, a glass smashed in the back of the room. Let's follow that. Let's make the next five minutes about that. And with film, if you say, I don't know, if someone says, is this chandelier going to be uh, clear or or is it going to have some kind of jewels on it? And, and, you, and you say, I don't know. You've basically cost the production a couple thousand dollars. In case of Joss Whedon, our competitor who directed The Avengers. Um, with whom you're, you're locked with Joss with Whedon a feud. in a bitter. Yeah, bitter YouTube feud. Yeah. It's millions of dollars if you say, I don't know, or hundreds of thousands or thousands of dollars. But it's... But it's it's something I had to learn to I had to learn to say when I didn't know which I would just say after a while I would just say I'll tell you in five minutes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian, actor, and now director Mike Birbiglia. His new movie, roughly based on his own relationship troubles, career trajectory, and unusual nighttime habits, is called Sleepwalk with Me. There are scary, painful moments in this story. Yeah, were they different for you to experience? As, you know, you had told these stories hundreds of times. I mean, you did an off-Broadway run of this show that went on for some months. But were they different for you to do them sort of, I don't know, in the in the first person uh, to portray them as happening now? Was that a different emotional experience for you? Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I mean, there's a breakup at the end of the film. And it's like I had to recall that. 
and bring back the sense memory of that as an actor, which was, but it's you know it's painful. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, it was not something that I uh, would want to do every day. <laughs> and yeah. certainly the jumping through the window. It's like we shot. I sleepwalked, you know, through a second story window and at La Quinta Inn, and we shot uh, that scene at La Quinta Inn, and then that night we stayed at La Quinta Inn for convenience and with the whole crew. And and certainly there was sort of a PTSD response that I had to that. I mean, I can I can literally, the audience at home is listening on the radio, but I can see, as you started to talk about that painful thing, like you folded inward physically. Yeah. No, and, and every time I see the jumping through the window scene, and I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times, it makes me cringe and kind of fold inward, like you're saying. There's also the matter of perspective, which is to say that when you're a stand-up comedian, the audience sees everything through your eyes. That's right. And the audience has a deep, personal, intimate connection with you which also is, I, I think, the case in radio, mm-hmm. um, particularly in radio, and certainly also in, in reading a book. You have this connection with the author because they're the person through whom you're experiencing mm-hmm. the story. That's not necessarily the case in a movie. You narrate the movie mm-hmm. from now. From, you know, yeah, the present. These are things that happened 10 years ago. In, That's right. And... I wonder if that choice was made because you realized how difficult it might be to tell a story about, you know, you realize where the where the payoff is you realizing that you don't want to have the thing happen that happens at the happy ending of every movie, which is a happy marriage. Yes. Um, Because we need to connect to you in order to not hate you. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, there's certainly the moment in the film where I say, before I tell you this part of the story, I want to remind you that you're on my side. And I say <laughs> that to the camera. Then there's another, I mean, there's another moment that comes from your act um, where you say, uh, yeah, I know, I know. I'm in the future yeah, too. I'm in the future also. Could you describe to me the feelings that you had when you were thinking about although, marriage although, and it was wrong? And, and yeah. describe for me what changed about those feelings five or eight years later when you did get married. Yeah. I mean, how I felt about it before I got married was I never envisioned this in my life. Um, when I was a kid, I was, I was wildly ambitious and I, had, I, was, I, I very clearly saw that I was going to be a comedian or a rapper or a breakdancer. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that path seems uh, clearly laid out. I'm going to be, I literally thought when I saw the movie Breakin in the 80s, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a, a classic break, of a, a breakdancer on the streets of New York, performing for nickels and quarters and then huddling and gathering those together to pay for my rent. I thought that was a viable option. I never thought that marriage was a viable option. <laughs> Just in contrast, those two things. Wait, did you? Were you? One married? of them is a much more. One normal. of them is a much more like normal path that people typically see as a real thing, and they do. Were your parents? One, the other married? one is. Yeah, my parents are married, and they still are. They've been married for for many many years. They're in their seventies, and I just didn't. For whatever reason, I just didn't see that as what I was going to do. I, I, I don't know why exactly. Was I, it like one time Henry Rollins was on the show, and I thought it was something really amazing that he said, and I'm paraphrasing and oversimplifying and working from memory from five years ago. But yeah. He said he, doesn't, he has some friends that he likes to go see in Washington, D.C. when he's at home in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And he sort of came of age with. But in his day-to-day life, he doesn't really have that many close friends. Huh. And it's because he just decided that he's going to be an artist that spends his time and emotional energy creating. Yeah, I think, yeah. I Is think, that what I you think... imagined for yourself? I mean, not when you were seven, but when you were 22? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I put, I, I, I felt like when I, I felt like I didn't have the talent 
to just get by on talent. And I felt like I grew up in Massachusetts where Larry Bird was the Larry Bird was the hero who everybody said was the first guy to practice, last guy to leave, and that he wasn't a natural athlete, which is hilarious because now you look back and you go, well, he's six foot eight and he has hands the size of baseball gloves. Like he's a pretty, he had a lot of the attributes (laughs) one would want for basketball. (laughs) But uh, but that was always my model was was just it was ingrained in me from the Celtics was just like I gotta be I'm not talented enough I just gotta be first guy to practice last guy to leave and so I feel like that didn't allow for the prospect of a serious relationship. You described this ambition that you have. The story in your in in the film is you finding, figuring out what is authentically you. Absolutely true, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the case of so many artists where you get into it for the wrong reasons and along the way you realize that what you'd really like to do is do it for the right reasons. I think that's the, I mean, I have, a, you know, my friend Jack Antonoff, who's in the band Fun, which has the, I think, probably the best album of the year, Some Nights. Um, he and I have been friends for like 10 years, and we talked about this recently, where it's like, like, in a way, you get into art and show business for like the wrong reasons. Like, you get into it you know you know for to you know for for me like for for i think guys to get girls and for girls to get guys like because you you're not accepted in that way um in a traditional sense and so you're like well i can do this other thing where i make people laugh and then girls like me that's neat and then along the way you are in order to get successful you have to put in so many more hours than you thought you were going to have to put in that along the way you're like ah, well now this is terrible now i now i'm exposed to richard pryor and chris rock and woody allen and james l brooks now i know what's good now i have to make something that's good how could i not when you see these people who are the titans of our field you just go well this is what i have to do and so then kind of by accident, you end up doing things for the right reasons. Why do you think you say this is what I have to do and you don't just think, why am I doing this? I should just give up. Because you've invested so much time that you've become indoctrinated <laughs> into the religion of stand-up comedy. Well, I, I think that's as, as good a place to end as any, Mike. Thank you so much for joining me again on Bullseye. Jesse, I love it here, and I'm gonna uh, just gonna hang out here for a while after this wraps. Mike Verbiglia is the co-writer, director, and star of Sleepwalk with Me, which is in stage release right now across the country. So, go see it. It's a it's a really lovely film. Thanks, Jesse. Every week on the show, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. So there are two kinds of sports documentaries. The first is the, you know, personal behind-the-scenes movie. This is the kind of movie that looks at the story of a boxer who's just trying to escape the hood or a high school football team that brings a small Kansas town together, that kind of thing. The second is the retrospective. That's a couple of beat writers and a few athletes doing talking head interviews about you know, the Miracle Mets or whatever. Usually the first kind, the personal kind, is good. And the other kind, I mean, it's fine if you like what it's about. It's basically ESPN filler. I'm pretty sure, though, that I just saw the greatest Talking Heads and Reminiscences sports documentary ever. It's called Winning Time. Reggie Miller and the New York Knicks, and it is so, so fun. Reggie Miller was one of the master showmen to ever play sports. Here's the setup, if you're not a basketball fan. Reggie Miller was the shooting guard of the Indiana Pacers. Indiana, of course, the birthplace of basketball, and Miller comes from a basketball family. His older sister is actually one of the greatest women's basketball players of all time. So pretty much every year in the mid-'90s, Miller and the Pacers met the New York Knicks in the playoffs, and these two teams, they hated each other. 
The Knicks were big city slick, and they were tough, huge guys. The Pacers were sort of an upstart, impetuous, trash-talking, especially Reggie Miller. And he was so good at it that you spent the whole week before you played them saying, don't let Reggie get to you. You're telling all the guys, don't let Reggie get to you. So what are you thinking when you go to the game? Don't let Reggie get to me. He already got to me by saying hello. Oh, and the Knicks' biggest fan was Spike Lee. He had courtside seats, which led him into some very, very contentious conversations with Miller during games. So structurally, there isn't anything all that crazy or unusual about winning time. It's Reggie Miller and Patrick Ewing and the beat writer for the Indianapolis newspaper remembering what it was like back then. Highlights of great moments, that kind of thing. But when Reggie Miller's sister, his sister, his own flesh and blood, sets him up like this. He's maddening. He is a maddening human being. And, you know, Spike Lee is just as charming and amazing and ridiculous as Spike Lee always is. If you go to playgrounds across the country, there's always one little guy who can't play very well, but he stands over there and talks all the crap. (laughs) And the basketball is as intense as it is in this movie. The whole thing turns out to be as thrilling and hilarious as 70 minutes watching middle-aged guys reminisce could possibly be. I had never seen anything like that. Never seen that. We had not seen anything like that. Never seen anything like that. Never seen anything like it. Basically, winning time. It's, you know, it's winning. Here's the shot. Yes! That's my option. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our interns are Lindsay Pavlis and Tom Pike. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. Thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studio for engineering the New York side of our interview with W. Kamal Bell. Special thanks to Lindsay Pavlis for her help with the edit on the W. Kamal Bell interview. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.